The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the simplest, most powerful website creator that helps you make headlines with your own stunning online presence. Explore elegant templates, Getty image integration, and more at squarespace.com and use the code Guardian to get 10% off. Hello and welcome to this week's Books Podcast. I'm Claire Armistead and I come with a question for you. What does the piece of music you've just heard have to do with the poem you're about to hear? Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats, of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. There can't be many of you learned listeners who didn't recognise that as T.S. Eliot reading the opening of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. I'd imagine fewer of you will have recognised Alban Berg's Three Pieces for Orchestra. And the answer to my opening question is that both Prufrock and Three Pieces were completed in 1915, though that's also a bit of a cheat as the Berg wasn't actually performed until several years later. One way or another, 1915 was quite a year, as one of our guests, Robert McCrum, discovered when he compiled his list of the 100 best novels, which has been running in Guardian Books for the last 18 months. Both Berg and Eliot were pioneering modernists, a movement that is still resonating a hundred years on, as our second guest, Lara Feigl, will explain. She is the brains behind a new prize, Responses to Modernism, which is about to be awarded. But first, let's turn back to our source year. Robert, I've introduced this as the year of modernism, but that's only part of the story. You know, it is the year of modernism, or it's a year of modernism, but modern or the changes that were going on which lead up to this great watershed moment are curiously similar to our own. For example, you have an equivalent IT explosion in the early 1900s. You have global capitalism. You have a sense of impending doom. There's a lot, a lot of change. There's a lot of change in science and technology. There's a lot of change in the economy. There's a lot of change in politics around the world. So you've got a sense of everything tight. You've got Einstein. You've got... Freud, there's a lot of changes in perception and consciousness. And I think that 1915 responds to this really profound sense of the change that we have about ourselves. And the reason I particularly alighted on this this particular year is that you're coming to the end of your 100 years and I noticed that there are several Mm. cluster years. There are cluster years. And this is one of the cluster years. You've got four Mm. really big novels. And we we had a debate at one point about whether it was actually permissible to put four novels for Mm. one year. And I have to say that I can see that you need to have all of these four. 
and you know it's my choice and so the, the, and there's no rhyme or reason other than it's my selection tell, tell in, us what it, they it are it will include John Buchan who, who wrote this kind of archetypal thriller for 39 Steps there's the there's the D.H. Lawrence there's the good that's so- the rainbow the, the rainbow and, D. and then the Ford Manics Ford the, the good soldier which is sort of quasi-modernist and, and of human bondage and, and of human bondage yes the Somerset Maugham who's more traditional a good deal more traditional and was exceedingly successful as a writer in the 20s and 30s later on but you can't really link them other than they happen to be of the same sort of age and they've come through the same sort of process. But clearly this is the first year of World War I, so we're, we attribute more importance to this, to this moment than we might otherwise do. I not myself persuaded that war and creativity necessarily goes together. I think often crises don't generate fiction. Although you have another cluster year in 1939, interestingly. Interestingly, yes. But... On the other hand, those books, they came out in thirty nine, but they would have been written before that, so they aren't actually responding to warfare. And that's Flann O'Brien's That Swim Two Birds. It's Flann O'Brien at Swim Two Birds. John Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath, a book written in eight weeks or something. Party Going, Henry Green, and Raymond Chandler, The Big Sleep. Now, you can't really connect them. I, I, mean, I probably could find a theme which would link them, but it's hard to imagine what that would be. But but you do, nevertheless, we're going back, going back to 1915, which is yes. the subject of this podcast. The Rainbow and the Good Soldier... Significant modernist text, Lara? Yes, I think so. Certainly significant proto-modernist text. I think we can think of Ford perhaps more usefully as an impressionist, sort of leading into modernism. But the narrator of The Good Soldier is, is very much playing sort of archetypal modernist games. And Lawrence, in a quite different way, the narration seems more straightforward. But the way that he changes character into something much more unconscious than it had previously been seems to be a sort of radical modernist intervention. So tell me what modernism is you know you, you mentioned typical modernist games is it it's about unreliable narration partly is it I think it's more than my job's worth to give a two-second definition of modernism but I think we can think of it perhaps usefully both as a, a moment and an avant-garde style and as a moment modernism's responding to the modern to the changes in society that Robert mentioned to changes in science and technology to a sense of doom at the beginning of the 20th century fragmentation the city and, and it involves tearing up the Victorian narrative fiction script doesn't it yeah so that's so as a moment it's doing that but then stylistically I th- yes very much it's there's a sense of Virginia Woolf famously said in 1910 human character changed and that's about she's, she's locating that year as the year of the post-impressionist exhibition so it's a year in which art has changed but also in which they're sort of ripping away the, sh- the sort of last shreds of Victorianism and, tra- and traditionally 1910 was the great modernist year well, as you've just said that is that was the year which as critics have identified as the modernist more than 1915, oddly, or interestingly. But nonetheless... Perhaps as a result of, of Wolf's comment. But then there's the question of avant-garde style, which I think really begins outside literature. You, you played Alvenberg. We could think of the Rite of Spring in 1913 as the sort of archetypal modernist moment in music, I suppose. And in art, we've got Impressionism sort of in the 19th century in, in France sort of turning into something more radical and more abstract in the early 20th century. And literature... I suppose is sort of combining the, that kind of formal innovation because it's it's more driven by subject matter with an interest in consciousness and in thinking about how the narrative voice can respond to Virginia Woolf's sense that human character has changed, that the things we're interested in in people is, is no longer the, the sort of buttons on their shirts and the paraphernalia around them in their homes. It's how the mind works. It's, it's the atoms falling on the mind on an ordinary day, is Virginia Woolf. It's also very interesting, I think, that the... You know, the modernism literature, you could say, begins with someone like Conrad in The Heart of Darkness in 1899, which was actually serialised like a Victorian novel. 
mm. in um, a number of parts in Black Blackwoods. Well, it's interesting that that Ford he, himself is serialised yeah. in in Blast, which I think is a very surprising. And, and so Blast was Wyndham Lewis's modernist journal. So, yeah. you, so yeah. you have the overlay of the Victorian me- methods and the modern methods. You've got the Victorian serial novel, and then you've got the Edwardian avant-garde using the Victorian serial to express modernist ideas. Yes, which sort of pleasantly points us to the fact that, you, that one movement never quite gives way to another mm. in a straightforward <laughs> way. To dig down a little bit into these particular novels, Robert, mm. why are these the great novels of that year? Talk about The Rainbow. Why is that a great novel? I mean, we've addressed Lady Chatterley on this podcast, as, which, of course, that, that anniversary came up a, mm. a bit ago. Why, why is The Rainbow? Well, Lawrence is interesting. I mean, we all read, I think, I read, read him avidly when I was 17. I thought he was a writer of genius when I was 17. I read him at 17 and couldn't stand him. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, of course, you go through The Great Loathing, which follows. Which, oh, well, I went through The Great Love that followed. <laughs> so you, you did it the other way around. You I loathed did, him, exactly. and, then, and now yeah. do you love him? Yes, I do now love him. Ah, so now tell us more about this. I'm very interested in of this course, reverse m- process. Of uh, but my Lawrence is not your Lawrence. No. Because my Lawrence is the summer of love Lawrence. And the uh, late 60s, early 70s Lawrence, when he was very much an iconic figure for my generation at that time. I think and for me, he, I suppose he's a post-feminist Lawrence. Mm. That when I was, I'm sure when you were at university, he was absolutely canonical to the... We to all the, carried Lawrence around in yeah, the back pocket. But I managed to get through an Oxford English degree without picking up Lawrence. Having, having sort of hated him at 17, I decided to just avoid him and no one encouraged me to do so. And I think that's as a result of the sort of feminist backlash against Lawrence that had somehow sort of moved him outside the canon. So I really read him in my early 30s. In fact, because I was accidentally almost shortlisted for a job as a lecturer in D.H. Lawrence studies. <laughs> so what did you turn to first? I turned to Women in Love and mm. was immediately completely taken with it and felt like this was the moment in my life. And somehow, like I hadn't been led to expect him to describe women as well mm. as I found he did. And women in nature. And women in nature, which yeah. Is, which is, uh, the thing that strikes me, he's a great nature writer. And that's true of Chatterley, and it's true of Women in Love. And the Rainbow. And the Rainbow. And the Rainbow, where does it stand in his canon? I mean, I would have thought Women in Love first, most serious, Lady Chatterley most scandalous. The Rainbow, it's got all that stuff about cathedrals in it, hasn't it? So I'm the Rainbow and Women in Love began as one. They began as one, yes. That's the, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? That he was originally going to write one novel and then he tore them in half and made the rainbow and then... Partly a result of of his publishers asking for censorship of the sex. So he split it into two. Once he started rethinking it, he ended up splitting it into two. So the rainbow came out in 1915. And despite their intervention trying to get him to tone it down, it was quickly banned. Mm. And he then had several years of quite tedious litigation against it, which he had to deal with. And it, was, it all came out in the wash, but it was in the fine in the end. But it was, uh, it had a troubled genesis. But th- this is the one that you've chosen to, to include in your 100 novels of, it's, it's of Lawrence's very, it's novels. It's a very difficult choice. I mean, you know, Sons and Lovers, uh, and everyone has a favourite. I'm sure you have a favourite. Women in Love. Yeah. What's your favourite? Well, the, the I chose The Rainbow. Yeah. And I chose it because, because of the structure of it and the emotional grandeur of it. I think what's partly, you mentioned in your, your piece on him, the, the kind of generational... The, the sense of this is a sort of extraordinary family saga at the same time as it's a kind of modernist novel. And that seems to be part of what's brilliant about it, that it's taking a very traditional form and really taking us through the years of a family, but looking at that family in a completely new way, suggesting that people's relationships with each other and I suppose the reader's relationship with the characters is, is as unconscious as it's conscious. Mm. Moving on to The Good Soldier, Ford Maddox Ford, you very much said proto-modernist impressionist 
Lara? I mean, it is, it's, we, we've just done a reading group on it in which it was very much discussed in terms of modernism. Mm-hmm. I think we can certainly see the, the kind of the tricks the narrator is playing as modernist tricks. I suppose in its subject matter, it's very much, Ford is really looking back to an old world and the sort of Dowell may be an unreliable narrator, but I think his yearning for a sort of lost Englishness is very much a yearning of the book. But very, th- very personal to him too. Yeah, it's a very autobiographical book in many ways. Yes, I think impressionism is, is a particularly helpful term. My colleague Max Saunders has written a lot about Ford and impressionism, and I suppose sees it as quite a pictorial way of seeing the world. There's one point where Dowell says, the whole world for me is like spots of colour in an immense canvas. I think that's a helpful way to see the novel in which there is no sort of linear beginning to end that we might expect in a piece of writing and, and it's more like the sort of impressionist canvas in which we can dot from one moment to another. Ford's essay on impressionism in 1913 I think is immensely helpful for reading the book and he talks here about how you're going as a writer to capture the interest of a silent listener. He says you will do this by methods of surprise, of fatigue, by passages of sweetness in your language, by passages suggesting the sudden and brutal shock of suicide. You will seek to exasperate so that you may better enchant. You will, in short, employ all the devices of a prostitute. <laughs> ah, well, uh, that's, that's, that's a very that's interesting. So him, isn't it? It's such a great statement. But also, better enchant, employ all the, 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 the devices of a prostitute might be you might think that that's more applicable to John Buchan. 39 <laughs> Steps, might you not? Can, can, I, can I interpolate? I think the fascinating fact, it was written by Ford, but he actually dictated it. He paced up and down the offices of the English Review and he dictated it to, to, to a woman he was in love with, in fact. So it was a love letter, in a way. And the idea that this extraordinarily complex, subtle, mm. multi, multi-faceted narration was held in his head so he could actually put it... Extraordinary. But in a way, I suppose, explains the mm. fact that mm. it's... It's certainly not held in Dowell's head. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But, it, uh, but it, and it's a far cry from John Buchan, who read his book, I think, in six weeks, Recovering from Flu. And, and why is that an important book? Well, it's, it's not as important, obviously, as these two which we just discussed, but this is a series which is designed to pick out 100 books which have classic status. I wanted not to lose sight of the thriller, because after all, the thriller is a genre which a lot of people are very interested in. And I wanted to recognise that there are very few in this in this list, but this is one of them, which is like the ancestor of the, of the thrillers we read in the 40s, 50s and 60s. It laid down a template for a certain kind of narrative. And so I felt it was important to put it in. Although there are parts of it, notably it's anti-Semitism, which are very distasteful. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace. When it's time to create a website for whatever's newsworthy in your life, whether that's a small business, online store, professional portfolio, or just a blog, go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. And then the fourth one of Somerset Maugham, of human bondage. Somerset Maugham is, has gone incredibly out of fashion, mm, hasn't he? Yeah. Would, you, this was perverse. So <laughs> you just chose it as just, a sort of... Just deliberately. So I wanted to, again to represent something which actually I reread with some pleasure for this list, which was, as it were, more mainstream, more traditional Victorian fiction, which was, in, in, as I say, in the 20s and 30s, would, would become very successful. And he made a fortune out of these kind of books. But there's no question he's not in the same league as Lawrence or later on Joyce or, or Wolfe. But he's a very influential figure and widely read. And I felt that any writer who was going to be read as widely as he was in the 20s and 30s deserved to have a space in this. In this. Although actually I now regret this because I'm now very short of space for my final nine 
slots. We're so into the last I'm nine into, years I'm of, nine, the, of so the 20th I'm, I'm, century. I'm basically, basically, I'm running out of, uh, talk about clusters, there are plenty of clusters coming up, but um, I've only got nine slots. So. Before we leave Ford and Lawrence, should we just talk a little bit about the reception of both those books? Because coming out in 1915, at the beginning of war, I think they got a lot more of a hostile Absolutely. reception than they'd and, and actually the buckens sold incredibly well because the, in the trenches, the men would read it in the trenches and they could put it in their back pockets and they, they could have it in the trench and read it. It was a cheap thrill, really. But they weren't going to want to read a, a book called The Good Soldier about a soldier who actually doesn't seem any longer a sort of very heroic... That was the publisher's choice of title, if you yeah. remember. It was called something else... The saddest story ever told. It was called or the saddest story. Saddest story, and then his publisher said this was too. And too he much. he suggested the good soldier. Ford suggested it almost as a joke, and the publisher sort of took it up, and suddenly there was this book with the, the title. The next thing Ford knew is he had he had the proofs for the things saying the good soldier in front of him, and he couldn't change it. In 1915 was also the year that Yeats wrote a poem called "On Being Asked for a War Poem." which absolutely refused to address war. And he was asked by Henry James to contribute a poem to an anthology which Edith Wharton was putting together to raise money for Belgian refugees, I think. And so this thing about this anti-heroic strand was obviously really strong. Then, you know, there in Yeats, you have another person who's sort of proto-modernist. And I think one of the things I've discovered from my list as a whole is that actually writers don't like to respond to dramatic crises on the whole, don't tend to sponsor great art initially. They may ultimately, but at the time, the slaughter in, in, in France did not lead to a series of great books. It led to some wonderful poetry, but in prose, it didn't lead to books until the 20s when you have the, the great memoirs, goodbye to all that, and so forth, and the plays, Journey's End, and so forth. But at the time, it's too overwhelming. People can't take it in. I think similarly in the Second World War, it was really the short story at first that was the form of that war. You've got a couple of reviews. Of Ford and Lawrence, yes. Just to give you a sense of how people were particularly shocked by these books because of the context of slaughter that was surrounding them. So when Lawrence came out, James Douglas said, a thing like the rainbow has no right to exist in the wind of war. The young men who are dying for liberty are moral beings. The life they lay down is a lofty thing. And I think with the rainbow, it's particularly problematic that Anton is a soldier and we see him in, in his sexual relationship with Ursula being quite emasculated, being overpowered by the sexuality of a woman. And that, I think, seemed more disturbing to people in that particular moment. And then similarly with the Ford, one of the reviews said, good soldiers soon escape the fumes and do not descend so readily to the inferno of caddishness. <laughs> That is wonderful. What more can one say? Good title. It is. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's your next book, Lara. <laughs> so now let's turn from the modernism of the 20th century to the 21st century response to it. Here is Martin Scheuregger's In That Solitude, a composition for violin and piano. Thank you. 
Lara, this is one of three shortlistees for your prize, which is now in its second year, which is for creative responses to modernism. Yes. Why is this necessary? So I run a centre for modern literature and culture at King's and we're particularly keen to build links between the creative world of contemporary art and the academic world studying modernism. And we see modernism very generously as something that sort of begins in the 19th century and carries through to the 21st century and are pleased that Will Self came to launch the prize this year and very much shared our view. He thinks if the Renaissance lasts for sort of three or four hundred years then modernism will as well. And it's for postgraduate students responding in any art form. So we welcome paintings, films, musical compositions, texts. And it's proved really very successful in bringing in some great pieces that I think people wouldn't have produced without the impetus of the prize, both from sort of academics doing PhDs who sort of, I think, relish the chance to respond to their subject matter in a more creative way. So one of the shortlisted pieces last year was a response to Beckett through the medium of a sort of YouTube film. And also for people doing creative courses who enjoy thinking more academically, I suppose, about their writing and thinking, you know, if you're writing a short story in the vein of Ali Smith, perhaps linking it up to the influences that you may be drawing on without even being conscious of it in the early 20th century. And we're extremely lucky to have a really brilliant judging panel. Amazing judging panel. Yeah. So you've got the actress Fiona Shaw, you've got Juliet Gardner, who's a historian, you've got Jeremy Harding, you've got Deborah Levy, who is a, one could describe as a, as a modern day modernist. Absolutely. I mean, we, we sort of chose people who we thought were in some way modernist. And then Michael Barclay. Who does the, Private Passions on radio. Private Passions. Three. And as a composer, has been immensely helpful. In, in can I ask you, Laura, can I ask you Laura, do you think there is an avant-garde today in literature? Less so than in other art forms, but I think it's certainly there. Um, Hard and to spot, isn't it? we're keen to encourage it. Should we, at this point, play one of the other shortlistees, which is rather wonderfully called Notes on Cling Film, Part One, and it's a sound poem. In Gertrude Stein's essay, Compositionist Cling Film, based on a series of lectures given at Cambridge and Oxford, she writes, Composition is not there. Cling film is going to be there, and we are we are here. She's dead, wrapped in plastic. One should either be a work of cling film or wear a work of cling film. Lara, that is quite an extreme piece of work, isn't it? I mean, it's not something that you're going to curl up in bed with. (laughs) It's not, I suppose, although rhythmically it, it sort of lulls you comfortably along. So... Just to explain what they've done, they've taken lots of canonical modernist texts like Virginia Woolf's correspondence with Roger Fry, Gertrude Stein's essay, Composition as Explanation, and Frank O'Hara's Why I'm Not a Painter, and they've replaced the keywords with the cipher cling film. And the judges liked it because they thought it really did sort of make us look at these texts slightly differently. When Virginia Woolf says, I meant nothing by the cling film, we do think about symbolism slightly differently from, from when she says the lighthouse. And Chandler and Kingsley say that it symbolises the malleability and versatility of language as a material, which is a rather lovely phrase because, of course, the cling film shares that malleability and versatility. And I think it's very much in the spirit of modernist collage, but also asks some of the kinds of questions that modernist art was asking about the relationship between sign and, and its referent and about the nature of language, I suppose. Robert, there are two questions. You asked the question, is there an avant-garde? Which we think that there maybe isn't an avant-garde. I mean, in in literature, 
but the most exciting work is looking back to modernism and reminting the sentence in a way. Will Self reinvents the sentence, doesn't he, in, in Umbrella, his most recent work, where he, he can change a thought within, the, his, within the space of a single sentence. Well, in some ways, Umbrella is a, is a work of, sort of archival restoration. He's restoring a kind of Joycean text, isn't he? Yes, which so is, it's, but it's, in a very contemporary way. In a contemporary way, but yeah. it feels like the act of homage more than the act of revolution. So who are the modernists writing now? Where has this gone? I mean, obviously, what you're doing with this prize, Lara, is really exciting. It's a laboratory prize, isn't it? Mm. I mean, we've been actually selling work and being part of the... So we launched the prize this year with Will Self and Rachel Cusk, who we felt were modernists writing now. Next, we've got Ali Smith coming to launch next year's prize with Vesna Goldsworthy. Again, I think both of their recent books, How to Be Both, seems to have a very modernist... But you could could say that, having mentioned Rachel Cusk, Will Self and Ali Smith, that's it. There aren't many other avant-gardists... Whereas in 1915, you could have there'd been a long list of avant-garde writers. Um, yeah. Deborah Levy, Emma McBride. But again, we're, Tom we're getting McCarthy. In, Tom McCarthy. But again, we're getting into this area where are we talking about the avant-garde or are we talking about modernists? And is it a forward-looking movement or a backward-looking movement? I think if we accept Will Self's definition of modernism as something that can happily carry on and sort of incorporate postmodernism, it can be a forward-looking movement that nonetheless began in the early 20th century. But if Will is saying that modernism is the Renaissance... <laughs> well, he's saying it, has, it can have an equivalent longevity to the mm, Renaissance mm, mm, um, mm. and therefore that we don't quite know what's mm, going to happen next yeah. in modernism and it doesn't need to be a backward-looking... Well, that seems, I think that, that's definitely true. I think it, what is true now, what my feeling about this is that we've had this seismic change which this environment we're sitting in reflects in some, respect, in some senses and there's bound to be a literary dividend in the next 30 years. Bound to be. I, I, absolute money on it. But if there isn't currently much avant-garde, then I think it's more a question of the publishers than of the writers. Would because you because because it doesn't sell, and everybody needs to shift yeah. huge numbers of units. Yeah, that horrible word. Yes. Well, the publishers have done Ali Smith. That's not. I mean, that's which is actually. But it, but it isn't actually. In a way, Ali Smith is quite conservative, isn't it? Apart from the one central conceit, which is the story divided into two sections. It's certainly a, a, a delightful read. It is wonderful. Well, I know yeah. I'm a huge yeah. fan yeah. of it, mm. but it's not sort of. It's not the sort of thing that you tear your hair out. It's, not, it's, not, it's not difficult. It's, no. it's not notes on cling film. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Robert, you're, as we said, just about to wrap up your series. You haven't arrived at the neo-modernism, presumably, by the end of the 20th century, which is your, oh, your final I'm, destination. Well, I'm approaching it, though. But it's not... But no, not, no, no. These works are, are no. of the 21st century, these, this, this new My, appraisal. Yes, they are. And in fact, one of the reasons why I stop in the year 2000 is because I feel that it's very hard for me, particularly, or for or any of us, actually, to get a perspective on the last 20 years. Because when you're in the middle of it, it's very hard to get, get a sense of where you are, or indeed what's valuable, actually, to be very honest. Could I end by suggesting that, so our prize giving is on the 23rd of June at King's College London, and we're having a modernist cocktail party and prize giving in which we'll perform both these pieces and also show the illuminated book which is the third piece and if Guardian readers would like to email us at modern at kcl.ac.uk we have 20 places for readers to come to our party. Listeners, Sorry. listeners. Yeah. <laughs> so, and what does a modernist cocktail look like? <laughs> I think we'll have to come along and see Claire. <laughs> well there's a challenge. So the winner of the Creative Responses to Modernism competition will be announced on the 23rd of June, as Lara says. Robert's 100 best novels, if you want to catch up on all the other years, the uncluster years and the other cluster years, you can find at theguardian.com slash books. Mm. Thanks very much for coming along, both of you. 
For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com/audio.